0: For the Son of Man came to seek and to save the lost.
1: Well, good morning. This is very tall for your very tall pastor. Uh, but my, yeah, my name is James, and I serve over at the Vine Church, and it's a delight to be here. It's a delight just to hear kids in service as well. Um, and so I, a lot of what I do at the Vine is with family ministry, and so I love the voices of kids. that They're with us as we worship um, and open God's uh, word together. Um, my, my wife and I, we've been in Madison now for 10 years. Uh, i got three littles. Um, Lucy, who is going to be getting first grade tomorrow. Sad, we all are, that summer is now over, at least in our house. Uh, then i got a three-year-old, and then a one-and-a-half-year-old as well. So we stay fairly busy um, as a family. Uh, but one of the things that I do, and one of the things that's one of my deepest joys about being part of Madison Multiply is helping to lead um, our youth group, uh, which truly is a collective of churches, which I think is very unique um, and also really awesome um, as we are students and leaders across uh, Madison uh, uh, churches, all for this purpose of of, of giving students a place of belonging as they pursue and and dig solid foundations in their pursuit of Jesus. That's what we want to be for students uh, in in Madison, and uh, I had this is one of my favorite or uh, one of my um, uh, one of my favorite weeks of summer so far has been preparing we have a youth event actually right after this um, and it 's like messy games so if you go back to like if you went to youth camp or whatever, like I was on YouTube just like typing in, like, what is the messiest game that gets you dirty and yucky on YouTube? And it was great. It was a delight. I think people at Walmart thought I was crazy with the amount of, like, maple syrup and chocolate sauce and all this, like, ketchup, mustard, all these things I have, like, piled in my cart. Like, what is this person humanly able to do with all this amount of stuff? So if your youth come out today, it will be great. And I see lots of other families with rising students Um, know that this is an opportunity uh, to see your kids kids uh, grow in their pursuit of Christ. Um, We love it. Um, It's it's fun to be a part of. Uh, But as um, was introduced, learning evangelism from Jesus, um, it's challenging for me. Uh, I'll just say right out of the gates, like evangelism is something I know that is something I'm supposed to do as a follower of Christ, but it's really hard. Um, this has been very convicting for me as I've looked at this text with Zacchaeus and Jesus. Um, as much as I'm talking to you, I'm really, the Lord has really been working in my heart, um, first and foremost. And I want you to know that. And I, I said this uh, the other week when I was at uh, Eastside Church, um, and I'll say it again because I really believe this, I really hope this uh, in this series, that, you know, the new Flex Lane on the Beltline, like, it's awesome, Right? It flex all the way through Madison, I was like, man, driving in on Sundays, it's dead, and the flex lane has the red cross, right? Like, you don't, it's not open, because there's no traffic. But here's my hope and prayer that as followers of Christ, Madison Multiply, and, and other gospel-centered churches in Madison, that we would see that red check turn to that green check mark, right? Because there's so much traffic on Sunday mornings, because folks in our community are desperate to, to know their Savior. That's my hope, that's my prayer as we uh, continue in this idea of learning evangelism from Jesus, that we'd be a family of churches shaped by Jesus and how we share our faith and our hope that we have in Him. And may that be true by God's power and by our own faithfulness, that there would be many conversions in our city. Amen? Well, in our time this morning, I was just read, uh, we're looking at the story of Zacchaeus, and perhaps it's a familiar story, and if you grew up in the church, uh, for sure, it's probably a story you've heard uh, before, and if you're like me, as I've looked at this now for a couple weeks, and I've had the same little tune stuck in my head, right? You probably know it. We can sing it together. Zacchaeus was a wee little man, and a wee little man was he. Do you want to keep going? He climbed. All right, we can stop, we can stop. That's been, that's been in my head for three weeks, so it's good to work it out. But before we, we put our eyes on this passage with uh, Zacchaeus and, and look at Jesus' encounter uh, with him, I, I ran across an interesting article in my preparation um, from a survey uh, from the news organization, Gallup. Uh, and it's a survey that has this title. It says, U.S. church membership falls below majority for the first time. The church membership in the United States falls below, below majority for the first time, meaning that more people in our country uh, in any time in American history do not belong to a church than who do. And, and that's probably not too surprising to us to hear. It kind of makes sense. I'd be like, yeah, I kind of figured that. But what I did find surprising is that this survey that this organization does every year for decades, just 20 years ago in the year 2000, like I'm in high school in 2000, The same poll, identical poll, found that 70% claimed a church home for where they attended, 70%. But today, in 2022, that's all the way down to 47%. So, So in 20 years, it's fallen by 20 percentage points from 70 to 47. And in my mind, it's like, well, where will the next 20 years, you know, perhaps take us? LifeWay and Pew Research collaborate this discovery in their own polling, claiming that six out of ten evangelical churches have either plateaued or in decline. Six out of ten. So so what's the driver behind these declining numbers of our churches? Why are our membership declining? And every study that I looked at, it was the same same answer. It's, It's those with no religious affiliation. Or as they categorize as the nuns, N-O-N-E-S. And they will stay. Uh, every survey I, I found basically says the same stat. It says one in four American adults claim no religious affiliation. One in four. And, and the largest demographic of these nuns are people like me. It's the millennials, it's the generation Z, it's my age and younger makes up this nuns so, it's not too radical to say, like, we're living rapidly in an increasing post-Christian, post-church culture. But it, but it does mean that of the 200,000 or so people that live in Madison, the majority of our neighbors, our coworkers, like, they will simply have no interest in coming to church. That's just our reality. And despite this decline, even though I spent a great deal trying to say that there is a decline, half of our population does remain religious. Half of our population is committed to church, meaning there is a way that we can make church work without any regard to the unchurched, to those in this nuns category. We can make church work without any regard. It's it's not really that hard, right? We, We keep a clean website. We cast some propelling vision. We build helpful programs for the church and community at large. And then we just sit back and rely on the Christians we know who will be moving into Madison. And it happens all the time, right? Thank you, Epic. Thank you, UW. We know Christians, already church folks, are going to come into our community. And we can sit back and just be a church destination, can't we? That could be our church growth Strategy Sounds comfortable, Except we learn from the life of Jesus, from Jesus' encounter from Zacchaeus, that Jesus is far more concerned with those who have no interest in church than those who are already religious. Look at verse 10, if you're there with me in Matthew, or in Luke 19. As Luke summarizes this account, really from Jesus' own words in verse 10, he says, For the Son of Man, Jesus, came to seek and to save who? Not the church, but the lost. Jesus' mission is to seek and save the lost. That's why he came to earth. In reflection upon this mission of Jesus, Tim Keller, I don't like what he says, but he says this. He says, Jesus is teaching consistently attracted the irreligious while offending the bible believing religious people of his day our churches today do not have this effect the kind of outsiders jesus attracted are not attracted to our contemporary churches we tend to draw conservative buttoned down moralistic people the licentious and liberated or the broken and the marginal avoid church and that can only mean one thing If the preaching of our ministers and the practice of our parishioners do not have the same effect on people that Jesus had, then we must not be declaring the same message that Jesus did. I find truth in that. Jesus came with a mission to reach those who'd never show up in our churches. And as his church, we're called to join him on that mission. So that's simply our big idea this morning, that as Jesus cares for the lost, we, the church, care for the lost too. That as Jesus cares for the lost, we, the church, care about the lost too. Let's pray again. Jesus, we ask, Lord, that you would make your word come alive to our hearts, that you'd open your word to our hearts, and that our hearts would be open to your word. Lord, we pray for your Holy Spirit, to help us in these moments together. In your name we pray, amen. Well, in this brief encounter that is recorded for us, we see Jesus encounter Zacchaeus and showing us what it might look like to care for the lost. And so our outline this morning is going to be fairly simple, just following the narrative of this text, it's simply looking at a, a picture of the lost. We'll look at Zacchaeus. As Luke gives us a a snapshot of what it is to be lost without faith. And then we'll turn and we'll look at our Savior. We'll look at Jesus together. And we'll see his encounter with the lost. And then finally we'll bring it all together with what do we learn for how Jesus interacts and encounters with Zacchaeus. So that's our direction. We'll look at the lost. We'll look at our Savior. And we'll look at how do we learn from Jesus. Are we all good? Let's go. Well, I'm going to start by saying this about Zacchaeus. In all of Jericho, I believe in my study that he perhaps might be regarded as the most unlikely candidate in all of Jericho to be welcomed into the family of God. But I think he very well could have been the most unlikely candidate to be welcomed into the family of God. Why do I say that? Well, Luke tells us, as you look at verse 2, he tells us a description of who Zacchaeus is. He says that Zacchaeus is a tax collector. A tax collector. And as many of you probably know, you know that Rome is in control. It's the global power at this time. And and Rome is not a pleasant occupying force looking to bring, you know, peace or stability. No, Rome is a brutal tyrant seeking to uh, slaughter innocent lives for power and gain. And wherever Rome conquered, they would also place heavy taxation upon their their subjects. And connivingly, Rome would employ local civilians, and in this case, local Jews, to collect these taxes that they placed on the people, knowing they needed somebody from within who knew the cities, who knew the people, who knew where the money was. And Rome didn't pay these tax collectors. They didn't get a wage. Rather, they wisely said, hey, this is how much we expect you to collect, and anything above that, go ahead and Keep. That's a system ripe for corruption, isn't it? And not only were they allowed just to keep anything in addition, they were also given a squad of Roman soldiers to enforce any taxation demands that they made, whether it was an actual tax from Rome or just a tax they made up to conjure up to fill their own personal coffers. These were men not just cheating you out of your own hard-earned money and profiting for you, but these were men sold out to the enemy. They're collaborating with Rome, helping fund the very oppression that you find yourself under. I don't think we can imagine a much worse person. It's hard to think of a modern day example, but if we think about in the time of the Nazis, of a Jew perhaps collaborating with the Nazis to help fund the oppression that they were doing against Jews. This is why tax collectors were were hated, they're thieves, they're traitors to the Jewish nation. And so despised, I learned that at this time, Jewish law would actually say that they did not consider these tax collectors as human beings. And, And so it was okay to lie to a tax collector, because in Jewish law, lying to an animal such as a tax collector is regarded was not a sin in Jewish law. But Zacchaeus is not just a tax collector. What does Luke say? He says that Zacchaeus is a chief tax collector. A chief tax collector. Meaning he's some sort of of top-of-the-pyramid tax collector with all other agents, collectors reporting to him, no doubt reaping the riches of all those underneath him, right? Thus, verse 2 says that he is rich. And though he's incredibly profitable and rich, Zacchaeus is also an outcast. He's barred from entering the synagogue. He's sent or shunned from basically every Jewish relationship in Jericho. His tax collectors were unclean. Come near a tax collector and you defile yourself. But as we look at verse 3, we see Zacchaeus has an eager eager curiosity about the person of Jesus. But because of the, of the crowd as Jesus makes his way through Jericho, Luke tells us because of Zacchaeus' small stature, he can't get near. And you can imagine knowing how despised Zacchaeus is in this community. He's known, he's despised and hated. You can imagine you know, this, this great crowd, I, I think of like a crowd at a golf course, like following like Tiger Woods. Like, you can barely see Tiger in his like red shirt, right? And the swarms of people around him. And Zacchaeus trying to squirm his way through the crowd. You can imagine the, the people shoving him back with curses, like, you will not get near Jesus, you disgusting little pig. This crowd won't let Zacchaeus get near Jesus because they hate and despise him and this is their Messiah, not his. And though Zacchaeus is powerful enough to throw anyone in jail and though rich enough to buy the largest house in all of Jericho, here's Zacchaeus with a curiosity to see Jesus and he does what? He climbs a tree. I think then and also now, but rich, wealthy men do not climb trees. I think Luke is painting a picture of what it looks like to be lost without faith. That no matter how many dollars you've amassed in your bank account, that no matter how far you've climbed the ladder of success wherever you work, no matter the thousands of followers you get on Instagram, it's all meaningless and empty without Jesus in your life and there's a searching a seeking for something more fulfilling and and more meaningful and we see Zacchaeus searching and seeking something his money and power could not get him and so he goes out on a limb pun intended he goes out on a limb curious about the person of Jesus eager eager And perhaps this speaks of where you're at today, out on a limb, curious about who Jesus is, eager to learn more, searching and seeking for something more meaningful or fulfilling in your life. I have tremendous news if that's you this morning, because Jesus says in his word that he has come to earth to seek and to save you. That's his mission to seek and save the lost. And now we get to see exactly how he does this as we see this encounter with Zacchaeus unfold. By this time of Jesus' life, it's near the end of his life. So he's perhaps one of the most well-known people in all of Israel. And he's passing through one of Israel's most important cities. It's not the capital, but it's it's a powerful city. It's Jericho. So we can think maybe perhaps parallel to like New York City. It's a big, large, important city. Yet he doesn't ask to meet with the mayor of New York City. I had to look this up, Eric Adams. He doesn't ask to meet with Eric Adams. He doesn't ask to meet with the chief priest, say Tim Keller. Rather, Jesus chooses to meet with the most despised and hated man in the city, Zacchaeus, the filthy traitor and thief. Look at me in verse 5. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down, for I must stay at your house today. Though hidden in a tree on this limb, Unseen, perhaps by the crowd, Jesus sees Zacchaeus. And I envision, this is just me speaking, I envision this happening in, like, slow motion as I think about how this perhaps unfolded. You know, the the swarms of people, hundreds of people around, Jesus all clamoring for his attention, like, Jesus, Jesus, like, hey, I got a question, hey, Jesus, I need healing, like, Jesus, Jesus. And all this racket of moving through town, Jesus suddenly stops on the path. And he turns and he, he looks up into a tree. And I imagine the, the crowd around him, kind of maybe a silence falling upon them as they all turn and look with Jesus. Like, where's Jesus looking? I, I want to look where Jesus is looking. As they all turn and look, and they all look and they see Zacchaeus in this tree. And with every eye of that crowd on Zacchaeus, Jesus shockingly says, Zacchaeus, I want to spend time with you. I want to spend time with you, Zacchaeus. And if you're like me, you might think, well, that's rather presumptuous to invite yourself over to a house of somebody you don't even know. What is Jesus doing here? What's happening? Well, again, we have to remember the social and religious customs of the day as it relates to Jews and tax collectors. It would be unthinkable for any Jew to enter the home of an outcast and sinner such as Zacchaeus, let alone a religious leader such as Jesus. So, so Zacchaeus literally cannot invite Jesus into his home. That's not going to work. So, Jesus invites himself over to his house, much to the shock of Zacchaeus. We see that as we look at verse 6, so Zacchaeus, he hurries down and he comes down and receives him joyfully. Zacchaeus has no idea that this is what would happen as he climbs the tree. He's shocked because he's a man that's despised and hated and overlooked. And so when Jesus looks him squarely in the eye, I, I got to imagine Zacchaeus is bracing for some harsh words from the religious leader. Yet Jesus calls him by his name. And says, I want to spend time with you. I don't want to spend time. He's not necessarily saying this. I'm not looking to spend time with all these people in the crowd. Those who are religious, they're, they're on this pilgrimage to go to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. That's where they're all going. These are religious people with him. But he turns to Zacchaeus, who's not religious. And says, I want to spend time with you. A sinner and an outcast. That's who I choose to spend time with. It shocks Zacchaeus and it also shocks the crowd. Look at their response in verse 7. And when they, the, the crowd, saw it, they all grumbled, saying, He has gone in to be the guest of a man who is a sinner. And so, in going to Zacchaeus' home, the home of a sinner, presumably to share a meal, Jesus is willingly polluting himself. He's ignoring every social and religious custom of his day so that he may fulfill the mission for which he was sent to seek and save the lost, to make the unseen seen, to make the outcast belong. In the final moments of this story, we we see the marvelous result of a lost person encountering the person of Jesus. Look at verse 8. And Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Behold, Lord, the half of my goods I give to the poor, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. I don't know of anyone who willingly gives away 50% of their wealth. I mean, it's one thing to maybe give it to your kids, But Zacchaeus has given it away to the poor. The guy that was willing to sell out his family, his country, for gain, for profit, is now like giving away his wealth like it's Halloween candy, right? What has happened to the person of Zacchaeus? We all know the answer, right? It's the overwhelming love and grace of Jesus. An encounter with Jesus leaves Zacchaeus with a heart changed forever, in fact, church tradition tells us that Zacchaeus goes on from this moment to be an early church leader. Believe, I, I believe in the, forsaking the, this greedy, selfish practice of tax collecting for what, what can I gain, right, for myself to be an agent of God's overwhelming grace and mercy to others. This is what happens when the lost are brought to the person of Jesus. So, so let's put this all together. What do we learn as We look at this encounter of Jesus and Zacchaeus. There's perhaps many things here, but I want to suggest three things for us today. Three things that we can learn. The first being that of we take the initiative, like Jesus, with the lost. We take the initiative with the lost. As I've said, Zacchaeus is a social outcast. He's despised, he's overlooked, he's hated. And if there's to be any sort of relationship with Zacchaeus, Jesus is going to have to make the first move, and he does. He invites himself over to Zacchaeus' home. In the same poll I referenced at the beginning, there's another statistic that they recorded, and it said that 13% of the unchurched 13% of those who don't go to church indicated that they would visit a local church in their local community if they were invited by a community member. So they don't know who this person is, but they've given them a flyer or some sort of invitation to come to church. 13% said they may positively respond to that. I thought that was pretty high, but 13%. However, if that invitation came from a friend, someone they did know, that number triples to 43% from 13% to 43%, making it nearly a 50-50 chance that someone that you know who doesn't go to church may come with you to church if you just invite them. To me, this study suggests that the unchurched may be suspicious of the institution of church, but they may be willing to hear the message of church from people like you, from those who they know and respect. One Christian author reflects on our Present culture saying this, "...merely opening our doors each Sunday is no longer sufficient. Offering a good product is not enough. What is clear is that great swaths of America will not be reached through Sunday morning services. It's not a question of improving the product of church meeting and evangelistic events. It means reaching people apart from meetings and events." The unchurched are unlikely to walk through our church doors. That's just our reality. We welcome you with eager arms, though if that is you, we're so glad you're here exploring the person of Jesus. We pray for you. Yet the reality is that every day, every one of us is in relationship with those who are lost in our everyday lives. And so the question then becomes of our attitude towards the lost, our our attitude, our desires, our aim in those relationships. And I'm convinced that the church will only reach the lost, only as us as Christians, the church, courageously take the initiative as Jesus does in cultivating genuine and authentic relationship with those around us. And let me just suggest two, I think, really manageable ways for how we can take the initiative with the lost. One, I say this at the Vine quite often, but I, where you live, be front yard people. Where you live, be front yard people. Meaning where you live, apartment or home, be visible to those you live around. There's lots of families in here. So when you play with your kids, play outside in, in your yard where you can be seen by the other neighborhood kids so that they can be welcomed into however you're playing together as a family but play so you can be seen to invite kids into your life. Sit on the front porch, not the back porch, so you can chat with those who perhaps walk by on your street, but you're visible, you're on the front porch. Take walks around your block often. And if you need motivation, get a dog, have a child. (laughs) Take walks, and as you take walks, Even if it's a singular purpose of just, I just hope that somebody's outside so I can just say hello. Learn the names of your neighbors and their dogs. And to pray for your neighbors as you walk by their house. Where you live, be front yard people. The creativity is unlimited there. And secondly, as you do that, the companion of that is leverage your dining room table. Leverage your dining room table. Zach at the Vine says this often too. He says, a dining room table might be the greatest evangelism tool that we have today. I think he's probably right. Because just like in Jesus' day, sharing a meal together communicates desire and an earnestness to get to know someone. It, it, It signals a welcomeness into your own life of opening your home You know, people may say no thanks to coming to church with you. They may decline that invitation. But I've hardly known anybody who's declined an invitation to a free home-cooked meal. Or Culver's, for that matter. (laughs) I think as we sit around the table with, with individuals, there's just a normalizing of people. There's a lowering or or disarming of suspicion where you just have this opportunity to just care for someone by asking good questions and listening and engaging with their life story. Open your home, leverage your dining room table. I think two manageable ways for us to initiate with the lost as Jesus initiates is to one, be front yard people, be visible. And secondly, leverage your dining room table. But if we're going to do these things, we have to plan and prioritize, don't we? And so if I said get out your phone right now and open up your calendar, like would your calendar reflect right now that you care about the lost as Jesus cares about the lost? Does your calendar express that? But we have to take a step further here. Because if we're going to truly learn from Jesus, we must also consider who Jesus took the initiative with, don't we? In the midst of these crowded Jericho streets with hundreds of eager and suitable dinner guests, Jesus chose to spend time or to take this meal with Zacchaeus, the most despised and hated man in all of town. that's who Jesus started with. How can we be more like Jesus in welcoming those whom others have shunned? Who's the person in your neighborhood or office that everyone despises, perhaps gossips about? Who in your family is the crazy don't-go-near-uncle? Who in your life is viewed by others as unwelcomed or unwanted? Unwanted the name of the person or persons that you have in your head to those questions is a good place to start and initiating a genuine and authentic relationship because that's exactly who Jesus would have started with. It's an action that says you matter and I see you and I want to spend time with you and I don't care what others will think or say. When's the last time someone could say of you and your life, like, look who he's having over for dinner again. Look at that sinner, that outcast who's coming into their home. What do we learn from Jesus in caring for the lost? One, we take the initiative, especially the unwanted and the unwelcome. Secondly, we uphold the dignity of the lost. We uphold the dignity of the lost. Of the lost. No matter the sin, every person is an image bearer. Therefore, every person deserves our fight to uphold their dignity as one made in the image of God. And Z- Jesus, in very simple ways, upholds Zacchaeus' dignity. One, he calls Zacchaeus by his name. And I think in Zacchaeus' life, more often than not, he was called by rather unpleasant names, by the community at large who hated him, by the Romans who he worked for. Yet Jesus squarely looks him in his eyes and calls him, not by the names of what others label him as or what others think of him as, or perhaps what he thinks of himself as, but Jesus looks at him and calls him his proper name for who he rightly is. When Emily and I lived in Chicago, we attended a church of about 100 people and every Sunday, the pastor would distribute the communion elements, meaning you, you came forward and, and, and received the elements from him. And he would say, uh, James, the body of Christ broken for you, James, the blood of Christ shed for you. And he would literally say the name of every person who came up front. Now, here's a disclaimer. I was an unfaithful church attender in college. Not that that's an excuse, right? But it's just I was unknown as a college kid at this church. I had one conversation with this pastor for like maybe 30 seconds, like years ago, right? But every time I came forward, he would say my name. Not a Sunday went by that he did not remember who I was. And I tell you what, because of that being known I felt welcomed. I felt like I belonged. There's a welcoming, belonging, dignifying power in calling a person by their name. Jesus fights to uphold Zacchaeus' dignity by calling him by his name, but also by demonstrating desire to spend time with him. And I think as Christians, I know in my own life, I have this tendency that I need to separate from sinners, And sometimes, like, this notion that, like, if I hang out with sinners, I'm going to get, like, some sin disease, right? And, of course, we have to have wisdom here. I'm not just going to go hang out at a strip club with my neighbors for the sake of hanging out with the lost. There's probably freedom to do so, but wisdom's going to tell me that's probably not what's wise for me to do that. But we must learn from Jesus that he didn't come into our world to separate from sinners, but to spend time with sinners, When I was dating Emily, her sister and brother-in-law lived in Nebraska. And our first trip out there, right as we got out of the car after this like eight-hour trip to Nebraska, we're dating. Topher, her brother-in-law, greets me as I'm opening the car door. And he's like, hey man, so glad you're here. I got this amazing place I want to take you to to watch the football game. At this point, he didn't know really anything about me. We've met like once, but he knew one thing, that I love sports. And so he intentionally purposefully thought of a way to spend time with me that was 11 years ago but I still remember that encounter like yesterday I was an outsider to the family just dating outsider and here's someone from within the family with the desire to spend time with me he he planned something intentionally it was incredibly meaningful as we intentionally spend time with a loss no strings attached it communicates care and love Jesus upholds Zacchaeus' dignity in three ways, calling him by his name, demonstrating a desire to spend time with him, and then lastly, gladly receiving the gifts of Zacchaeus. In a sense, Jesus is saying to Zacchaeus, there, there is something that you can do for me. Like, I need food. I need, uh, need friends or a companionship, and I want you to provide that for me. We see Jesus do this with the woman at the well requesting water when he's thirsty, right? And as a dad, I see this constantly. When I say to my 6-year-old daughter, I say, "Hey Lucy, would you clean up the living room?" It's usually a 70/30 no thanks dad. But if I rephrase my request, I say, "Hey Lucy, without your help, our friends are coming over. Like I need you to help clean up the living room. Like I'm not going to be able to get it done without your help. Like I need you in this moment." It's usually 70/30 like, "Sure dad, I'll help." I'll I'll help provide for you. The power of being needed goes a long way in building bridges of trust and friendship, yet sometimes as Christians we behave as we have everything to give and nothing to receive. We imagine it discredit us or the gospel if we acknowledge any weakness or need on our part, but that's folly, right? Because the gospel says we are needy. Acknowledging needs of kindness or generosity from an unbeliever is not only just a help, to our own lives, but it also opens a pathway of trust and friendship from those who might only expect scorn and judgment from that of a Christian. What do we learn from Jesus in caring for the lost? One, we take the initiative, especially with the unwanted and unwelcome. We up, up, uphold their dignity as image bearers of God. And we, lastly and quickly here, present Jesus, not ourselves, to the lost. We present Jesus not ourselves, to the lost. The transformation of Zacchaeus is a testimony of the power of Jesus to save. From a despised tax collector to an early church leader, it's the power of Jesus that saves lives, not us. So as we go about initiating with the lost, seeking to fight to uphold their dignity, we do so in ways that always makes much of Jesus and less of us. May the lost in our lives never have to climb a tree like Zacchaeus to see over or around in order to see a picture of who Jesus is. May we bring the lost into the greatness of Jesus, full of compassion and grace, with the power to transform their lives. And may we remember that the story of Zacchaeus is our story too. Like Zacchaeus, we were despised, outcast before God. But in his grace, in Jesus' compassion, he exchanges his place in the heavenly places to stoop all the way down to our lowly height like that of Zacchaeus. To climb upon the very tree in which we dwelled, counting our sins as his, dying our death, granting to us his life. The story of Zacchaeus is our story too. Jesus loves the lost and as the church one's once lost, may we love the lost too. Amen? Jesus, we pray that this would be true of Redeemer City Church, a church known with great compassion and gentleness towards those who do not know you, Jesus. Lord, help each one of us to courageously initiate with those around us who do not know you. That we would earnestly seek to share your love in ways that are meaningful in the lives of those that we work with, that we live next to. Lord, we need your help in that we thank you for this story of Zacchaeus. Lord, we thank you for the example by which you show us of how we might do this. Lord, we pray by the power of your spirit and word that it would be true in our lives as we go and seek to make disciples. Make your name famous here in Madison. We love you, Jesus. Thank you for these moments together. Amen.